So Jimmy Kimmel threatened to beat a guy up last night, which is leftism in a nutshell. First they get all teary-eyed and emotional, then they hector you, and if that doesn't work, they resort to violence. We'll talk about why it always works that way. Also, Dr. Helen Smith will be here to talk about modern sex and what it's doing to us, and the stuff I like, great directors who started with terrific small crime films. But first, I thought this would be a good day to cover some of the stupid news stories you might have missed because you have a life and don't want to sit around reading stupid news stories. First of all, there was sports radio host Clay Travis who shocked CNN anchorwoman Brooke Baldwin by saying on air that the two things he believed in completely were the First Amendment and boobs. CNN journalists were united in condemning Travis's remark, saying that it was crude and disgusting to publicly praise the First Amendment, which apparently allows conservatives to just go around saying whatever they want, which CNN believes should be illegal. Personally, when I heard what Travis said, that he said he loved boobs, I thought he was referring to all CNN journalists, though Brooke Baldwin does have a pretty nice rack. Then there's the story of the protest march on Washington by juggalos and juggalettes. Now, you may ask, what are juggalos and juggalettes? Or, more likely, you don't care, but I'll explain anyway. Juggalos and juggalettes are the guys and girl fans of a hip-hop band called Insane Clown Posse. Insane Clown Posse are two men who call themselves Violent J and Shaggy Too Dope. So you know they're terrific. They sing hip-hop songs with lyrics like the one about a guy who went to prison and his girlfriend slept around and thus gave him genital warts and now he's going to blow her kneecaps off and then strangle her to death. So you know they're terrific. Anyway, the Obama administration, and what may be the only useful thing they ever did, classified these fans as a street gang, and the juggalos and juggalettes wanted that designation revoked. So there was a juggalo juggalette protest march on Washington, D.C., and you still don't care. Finally, all of us were charmed by a hard-working 11-year-old boy named Frank who offered to mow the White House lawn and got his chance. If that wasn't cool enough, as Frank was mowing, the President of the United States came out to greet him, but the kid was so intent on doing a good job, he didn't even take notice. Frank says he wants to grow up to be a Navy SEAL. I think it's safe to say that just about everyone in America loves this little guy. Except Stephen Greenhouse, who used to work for the New York Times. The former labor reporter for the former newspaper tweeted that President Trump was sending a bad signal on child labor, minimum wage, and occupational safety by letting the boy mow the lawn. Fortunately, since Greenhouse did used to work for the Times, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Labor laws do allow children to do chore-like jobs like mowing lawns. But even if they didn't, Greenhouse would still be a knucklehead who ought to stuff a sock in his mouth to protect himself from his own stupidity. But then, without stupidity, the New York Times would just be a bunch of blank pages. And that's the stupid news. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. I feel hunky-dunky. Life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing. Hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy. Lord, is it bitty-zing. It's a wonderful day. Hooray, hooray. It makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray. Oh, hooray, hurrah. Stop the hammering. Stop the hammering out there. Who's got a hammer? Where is it? Where's the hammer? Is it on the... Uh, go up on the other floor. Somebody go up there and stop the hammering. Stop uh. the hammering. <laughs>
<laughs> Lawrence O'Donnell on MSNBC is an eight-minute video of him just going off. Guy, you know, he needs to relax. I think what he needs is some single nostril breathing. But, you know, you do hold, and you breathe through one, and you hold it, and then you exhale through the other, and you keep going. You know, to be, I, want, I want to be fair to Lawrence O'Donnell, though. This does happen to people, right? I mean, we, we all try to be decent and everything. But the other day, Michael Knowles did a segment. He got a few minor things wrong, and and I actually went off on him, and we caught that on video, yeah. So here, here's the video. Just to be fair to Lawrence O'Donnell, here's me going off on Michael Knowles. I want that son of a dead. I want him dead. I want him dead. I'm dead. What show. am I, alone in this world? Did I ask no. you what you're trying to do? No, did I ask no, you what you're trying to do? Please. I want you to get this where he breathes. I want you to find this Nancy boy. I want him dead. I want his family dead. I want his house burnt to the ground. I want to go to the middle of the night. I want to cut his ass. <laughs> Knowles took it well. I think he needs some single nostril breathing, could he? But you know, you do hold and you breathe through <laughs> one and you hold it and then you exhale through the other and you keep going. <laughs> I'm just going to do this for 45 minutes. <laughs> All right. We have Dr. Uh, Helen Smith here today, who is a who wrote a great book called Men on Strike. Uh, and she is a psychologist who uh, she's she's actually a psychologist who specializes in forensic issues in Knoxville, Tennessee. But she talks a lot about the relationships between men and women. And we're going to talk to her about whether there is a crisis in sexual relations. She will come on after we say goodbye to Facebook and YouTube. So if you want to listen to her, you got to come over to thedailywire.com. But really, you should just subscribe. Then you can watch the whole thing on thedailywire.com. It's a lousy 10 bucks a month. And for a year, it's a lousy 100 bucks a month. Plus, the leftist tears, yeah. the leftist tears tumbler, the tumbler. It's not a mug, it's a tumbler. It's because you need a lot of cup to catch all the leftist tears. It refills every time Donald Trump speaks. And, and ben, Shapiro, ben Shapiro is off again, right? It's, yeah. it's Russia. Happy New Year. Usually, I think Shapiro just makes these holidays up. You know, it's, yeah, it's Hanan the I got to take three days off. I'm going to the beach. You know, so my people, we go to the beach every. But no, happy, happy New Year. This is, and it's only, it's only days after Talk Like a Pirate Day, right? Yeah. Yeah. Talk like a pirate day. I was out there and I was saying, you know what? I need, I need me undies. I need me undies. That's <laughs> because it's true. Me undies are a new kind of underwear. It is just, it's a website where you can go on and select all kinds of different underwear. Differently made for men and women for obvious reasons that I hope I don't have to go into if you're adults. But th these things are so soft. They make it out of a material that is three times softer than cotton. It really is. It's a, you can feel it. It's just an amazing thing. I use them. I love to hike in them because it just is so comfortable going up and you just really stop thinking about them. It's a 100% satisfaction guarantee. They guarantee you will love meundies or you'll get your money back. That's, I, I just imagine that this is why they did it. Uh, so, <laughs> so right now, MeUndies has an exclusive offer just for my listeners. You get 20% off your first pair and free shipping. And MeUndies is so sure you'll love their underwear. They even offer a 100% satisfaction guarantee. You order a pair, and if you don't love your first pair, get a full refund. I don't even think you have to send it back because no one's going to wear it after you wore it. So, but, but it's not going to happen, so you don't have to worry about it. This is a no-brainer. 20% off, free shipping, 100% satisfaction guarantee. Why wouldn't you try it? I mean, come on. 
This is, it's a good reason to try it. To get your 20% off free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee and get the best and softest underwear you will ever own, go to MeUndies.com slash Clavin. How do you spell that, matey? <laughs> M-E-U-N. Oh, Clavin. K-L-A-V-A-N. That's MeUndies.com slash Clavin. This is a limited time offer, so don't wait. Start wearing the best underwear of your life. It really is. It's incredibly, incredibly comfortable. It's time to let MeUndies change your life. Go to MeUndies.com slash Clavin right now. So Jimmy Kimmel, first, first Kimmel goes on and he talks about his son who has this, his baby son had to have open heart surgery and he cries and it's very moving. But he uses this event to sell Obamacare, right? We need Obamacare because I, I'm not sure what the logic was there. Oh, because some people don't have insurance. Not everybody's making $35 million a year like Jimmy Kimmel is. So he cries, and it's like, oh, now we need Obamacare because he's crying. I, I, you know. And, and by the way, obviously, we all hope and pray that Jimmy Kimmel's son is all right. Ben Shapiro's daughter, I think it was, had the exact same operation with the exact same doctor. Ben Shapiro is not for Obamacare. Ben Shapiro would like—so it's, it's actually your emotions don't actually mean anything. You know, even though you have emotions, even though we, we have tragedies in our lives, that doesn't make us specialists in what kind of health care is best for America. So when that didn't work and the Republicans are still trying to repeal or they're not going to repeal it, they're going to change Obamacare, move some of the funding to the states, which hopefully would let the laboratory of federalism do good work and change the way this collapsing law will be administrated. So then he goes on, he starts hectoring you. We played that yesterday. Instead of doing his monologue, he's just sitting there screaming at people about the Republicans. You know, it's just like that. That's what we want after a long day is we want to see a late night comedian come on and scream at us about, you know, what he thinks is the healthcare should be. So now Brian Kilmeade, the guy on Fox and Friends, comes out and says fairly mildly, uh, you know, he says, this is the Hollywood elite. They're always pushing this thing, you know, the Hollywood elite always want, even though they're not watching the Emmy. Now, here is Jimmy Kimmel's response to Brian Kilmeade. And the reason I, I found this comment to be particularly annoying is because this is a guy, Brian Kilmeade, who whenever I see him, kisses my ass like a little boy meeting Batman. <laughs> oh, he's such a fan. He follows me on Twitter. He asked me to write a blurb for his book, which I did. He calls my agent looking for projects. He's dying to be a member of the Hollywood elite. The only reason he's not a member of the Hollywood elite is because nobody will hire him to be one. And you know, the reason I'm talking about this is because my son had an open heart surgery and has to have two more. And because of that, I learned that there are kids with no insurance in the same situation. I don't get anything out of this, Brian, you phony little creep. Oh, I'll pound you when I see you. That is. That's Kimmel going off, saying, I'll pound you when I see you. And the audience is applauding for this. He's threatening this guy, basically for criticizing him. And the audience is applauding. Yeah, pound this guy. He said something. He disagreed with you. You know, you've got to pound this guy. So, so just before I get on to this, I, I want to let Brian Kilmeade respond, because he responded to all those charges on his show. Have we got Kilmeade? 
Hope your son gets better. I hope your son gets all the care he needs. I'm glad you're interested. You're causing the dialogue. You're doing a great job bringing the dialogue out. But you should actually do what we're doing. Talk to the people that wrote it. Yeah, Senator uh, Graham, Senator Cassidy, asking tough questions to, to Michael. And we'll see where we go from here. About me and you personally, yeah, I did this thing called request an interview for an up-and-coming talk show host who did a great job on Fox Sports. And even when you weren't getting great ratings, I thought you and the show was excellent. When I was at American Idol across the street at the finale, I walked over at least two years, maybe three years, and you were kind enough to give an interview to me. I thought the pieces went great. I didn't kiss your butt. I thought you did a good job, and I thought I'd highlight behind the scenes on an up-and-coming talk show. As you trying, me trying to get you to blurb the book, a little mistaken, I actually tried to get you in this book in 2003. It's how you play the game. The games do count. Two books back to back. I wanted to focus on people in sports and how it helped them later on in life. So, so there's Kilmeade answering this. But the thing is, no matter what he said, it wasn't like hate speech. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like he was screaming at uh, Jimmy Kimmel. He said, you know, this guy is a Hollywood elite and he's pushing this thing on us. And Kimmel responds with... Basically a threat of violence. I'm not saying it's an actual real threat of violence, but it's, it's pretty real. I'm going to pound this guy and the audience applauds. I just want to point out, obviously, Jimmy Kimmel is not the biggest story in the world. But this is the left in a nutshell. This is the pattern of the left. First, they come out with their sob story. And there are sob stories in the world. There are real sob stories. But the answer to every sob story is not more government. The answer to every sob story is not we get to take this segment of your life over, and we now get to control your life. Because when the government takes over health care, as you see everywhere it has been done, they get to control your health care. They get to say, well, you did this, so we don't have to give, you're too old for health care. They get death panels, basically. They get to say, you are not going to, we're not going to give you any more health care because the state can't afford it. So they, <clears throat> they have that power. Everything they give you comes at a price. So they start with the emotionalism. When people don't buy into the emotionalism, when that doesn't stop the train, excuse me, they start to hector you. You know, it's like, what's wrong? You know, you're a, you're a climate denier. You're a this denier. You're that. You're a racist. You're this. <clears throat> when that doesn't work, they threaten you with violence. And this is, you know, this is like Antifa. <clears throat> when they can't silence, I'm sorry, I'm Choking to death. It's, a, it's, 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 it's the hammering. It's all the hammering that's bothering me. Stop the hammering. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. You know, guy needs to calm down. I think he needs a little single nostril breathing. But, you know, you do hold, and you breathe through one, and you hold it, and then you exhale through the other, and you keep going. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> um, you know, it's like Antifa. When they can't stop people, when they after they they first they start with oh the poor this oh the poor minorities oh the poor women oh the poor this, and when people say yeah but you know really they have to take care of themselves just like everybody else, then they start to hector you you know you're a racist you're a sexist you're this you're that when that doesn't work Antifa turns up and beats you up when people like Ben Shapiro still turn up on campus and and make their speeches Antifa shows up there was a, a poll recently, 51% of students, of college students, agree that it's all right to shout down speakers. 20% say it's okay to commit violence in response to words. And 44% say hate speech isn't protected by the First Amendment. I mean, they, they actually don't know what they're talking about. So they're not just angry and violent, they're actually ignorant. So 
Why is it like this? It's like this because the things they do don't work, and the, the things they do strip the power of the people. They're unconstitutional almost always. There's nothing in the Constitution that gives the government the right to take over our health care, to take over our uh, insurance market like this. You know, the insurance market bought into this because basically they said, we're going to force people to buy your product, and so it'll be great. But, of course, it's not great because they, they covered pre-existing conditions. This is the whole problem with Kimmel's argument, by the way, is that the reason people don't have health insurance is they don't get health insurance when they're healthy. When you have a, when your wife is pregnant, you insure the baby. You know, you shouldn't go into being parenthood without being insured for catastrophic illnesses. So, you know, Obama has destroyed the insurance market. He's taken it over. This is what, fa you know, this is fascism. Is fa uh, Communism is where the state runs everything Fascism is where they let the company run things, but they tell it what to do. And so when things go wrong, the company gets the blame, but the company really has no freedom. And that's why people are pulling out of this all over the place. So when people will not allow their fantasy to continue, they get violent. That is the way this works. So, I mean, we're seeing everything, everything the left tells us, everything they sell us turns out to be untrue. So remember when uh, Trump said that he had been wiretapped? in Trump Tower, and they said, oh, he was lying. They actually had on CNN, they had like chirons. Trump lies, you know, Trump lies. <clears throat> they had um, James Clapper on, the former director of national intelligence, right? So let's just go back in time for a minute. James Clapper sits in front of, I believe it was the Senate committee, and he lies about NSA gathering. So this is Clapper in 2013. Um, I'll tell you which number it is. It's number six. Um, in 2013, and here he is lying in front of the Senate. Yes. So what I wanted to see is if you could give me a yes or no answer to the question, does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? No, sir. It does not? Not wittingly. There are cases where they could in inadvertently, perhaps, uh, collect, but not, not wittingly. Okay, so now we know this is untrue, right? We know there's this huge uh, program where they were collecting all this uh, information, all this data. So now, in March, he's on uh, Meet the Press, and they ask him whether it's possible that— they ask him whether there were any FISA taps on Trump. And what is, is it possible Trump is telling the truth? So this is cut five. Obviously, I'm not, I can't speak officially anymore, but uh, I will say that for the part of the national security apparatus that I oversaw as DNI, there was no such wiretap activity mounted against uh, the president, uh, the president-elect at the time or as a candidate or against his campaign. Uh, I can't speak for uh, other Title III mm -hmm. authorized uh, entities in the government or uh, a state or local entity. Yeah, I was just going to say, if the FBI, for instance, had a FISA court order of some sort for a surveillance, would that be information you would know or not know? Yes. You would be told I, this. I would know that. If there was a FISA court order yes. on something like this. Um, something like this, absolutely. And at this point, you can't confirm or deny whether that exists? I can deny it. Okay, so now it's a guy we know, we already know he lies, right? Now he denies this thing, and now CNN comes out with an exclusive report saying that there was, in fact, an FBI FISA wiretap on Paul Manafort, who was, for briefly, Trump's campaign manager, who lives in Trump Tower, who undoubtedly spoke with Trump, and 
and there it's not it's not just him i mean they were wiretap they they uh tapped trump advisors carter page michael flynn uh and all these guys so now Don Lemon has Clapper on and says, uh, you want to, you know, confirm what you said? And Clapper keeps saying, I confirm it, but he really doesn't. Here he is. Is it possible the president was picked up in a conversation with Paul Manafort? Uh, it's, it, it's certainly conceivable. Yeah, Is that's, it likely? Uh, I can't say. I, uh, I wouldn't want to go there, but it, I will say it, it's, 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 it's possible. I mean, the left is living in a fantasy world, and every time something breaks through it, that's when they get violent. Now there's a report that Samantha Power, the former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, was unmasking people, you know, when they would tap, they would tap your phone, and you would get caught up in this conversation. An American would get caught up in a conversation that was being legally tapped. You're not supposed to unmask that. Samantha Power, the former, she was the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. She had no reason to unmask anybody. She was unmasking at such a rapid pace in the final months of the Obama administration that she averaged more than one request for every working day in 2016. These guys were running a game on the Trump campaign. They were The government of the United States was running a game on a candidate for president. We're going to talk, come back and talk about this if we have time, but Dr. Helen Smith is with us. we got to say goodbye to Facebook and YouTube. If only, if only you had subscribed. If only you would subscribe, had subscribed, you could see the whole thing on thedailywire.com. Now you can listen to it. If you subscribe for a year, you get the Leftist Tears Tumblr. Come on over to The Daily Wire and hear Dr. Helen Smith. <coughs> okay. Dr. Helen Smith is a psychologist specializing in forensic issues in Knoxville, Tennessee. She is the author, more importantly, of, more importantly to me, of Men on Strike, Why Men Are Boycotting Marriage, Fatherhood, and the American Dream, and Why It Matters. She is my colleague at PJ Media. You can find her at pjmedia.com slash Dr. Helen, all together, Dr. Helen. Hi, Helen. How you doing? I'm doing great, Andrew. How are you? <laughs> it's great to see you. Uh, it's been a while since we've talked. I think the last time it was out at the beach somewhere. Yeah, well, it was out in California. I think we did a show on porn back then. <laughs> Not, we didn't do porn. I mean, we just did a show on porn. But it's been a while. I always get to talk to you about the best thing, you know. So, yes, right? Uh, so I, I'm gonna, I want to talk about Men on Strike, but I want to talk first about a, a study that I saw and the way it was reported, too. I think this was in the Washington Post. It said a new study shows that teenagers, and this is the way they put it, are increasingly delaying activities that had long been seen as rites of passage into adulthood. The study in Ch Journal Child Development found that the percentage of adolescents in the United States who have a driver's license, who have tried alcohol, who date, and who work for pay has plummeted since 1976. But basically it says that they're not having as much sex and they're not drinking as much. So this, the headline could have been teenagers are getting more wholesome. It could have been a good news right. story. But they, So which is it? I mean, do you think that teenagers are, or, or males, teenagers especially, are absconding on adulthood or are they just getting wise? I mean, I think it's both 
girls and boys. But I think that there are several reasons for that. I think that we are delaying childhood so much more. I think parents now, they have fewer children. We have, what, one to three children on average 2.3. So I think parents put more and more effort into kids. And I think because of that over, um, I think kids are very much overprotected now. We have a lot of helicopter parents. And I'm not blaming parents. I don't think it's their fault. I think part of it is that we have so much supervision at schools and places for kids. Kids don't get outside and play anymore. I just don't think they're exposed to a lot of things that we were exposed to and we understood more about the world. They did these studies. I mean, I remember these studies have been going on for like 10, 15, 20 years where they've been saying that kids are getting younger and younger. You see kids who are 18, they're saying they're more like 15-year-olds. Um, I think there are two different things going on. I think one thing is that, um, you know, kids should be doing things like driving or getting jobs and things like that, and they're not. And I think that's a concern. The sexual concern of the alcohol, those are those are not really concerns. They're more, I mean, what's going on? So I, I think it, it depends. I mean, um, should kids 15 to 18 have sex? You know, it depends. <laughs> I mean, what is your feeling about that? That's, I mean, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It depends on the person. I, you know, I grew up in such a, I grew up in the 60s. It was such a hypersexualized time that it took me a long time to say to myself, you know what? I'm not really enjoying this. You know, I actually want to be with somebody and have, and, and like the people that I'm with instead of just doing stuff, you know? And I think that was, that, that was a very healthy thing, but it was such an unhealthy time. It was such a revolutionary time that it was hard for me to catch up with it, I think. Um, you know, I mean, I think this is, the thing is, old people always think young people are just going wild. They always think young people are having sex. But you kind of, you're kind of saying that men are withdrawing a little bit from the sexual game. Do you think that's still true? Um, I don't know that men are withdrawing so much, but I think that there are so many other avenues for men. And I think part of the problem is that we're always seeing things like, um, there was one book and one uh, that you mentioned about, you know, is cheap sex yeah. causing men to, not to get married. And I had written a post about that. And a lot of my readers really educate me and help me to understand what's going on. And a lot of them, to me, say, you know what, it's not that marriage is cheap. I think that the reality is that we we treat men very cheaply in our society. We hmm. treat men in ways that make them not want to be married. We treat them as disposable objects who are there for the availability of women now. And I think men used to, in the old days, get something out of marriage. There was a kind of a bargain. Hey, you're going to do some things for me, and I'm going to do them for you. But now it's like... Women want, the society tells women, you should have it all. You're the one that gets to go to work. Um, but if you want to, you could stay home and have kids. But a man doesn't really have a choice. And I think young men today really see, they see their fathers, their uncles, uh, older brothers, and they see that the contract for them isn't working out as well, that the marriage contract for them, um, anytime there's a problem, it's always the man's fault. And I think in older times, it, it, we didn't blame men. And I think our society as a whole is blaming men for every evil and every problem that we have in society. So I think that does get men withdrawing a little bit more and finding porn, the internet, and other avenues a little bit better. It's not that it's cheaper. It's just that their lives are cheapened by the fact that we don't... Um, actively give men those things in marriage that they would need in order to think it's a good deal. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes, I mean, it, ma it makes sense, but the guy who writes the book Cheap Sex is is actually saying that now sex is a buyer's market. I mean, the, the cliche is that what men want well, let me ask you this. I mean, the cliche is that what men want out of life is sex, 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 that they want lots of partners. They want uh, easy sex. They want to get it, you know, get it wherever they can and all this stuff. Do men want to do men want to be in a marriage? I mean, do they want a, a, a bond like that? 
Um, I think men really do want that bond, yeah. but the they looked at the Pew Research study, did a study, and they found out that it used to be that almost 40% of men thought marriage was the most important thing in their life, mm. and now it's down to 29%. Wow. Women, it's going up. And the reason it's dropping, I think, is just that it's marriage. I think men still want relationships, and men tell me that. Men still very much believe that that's an important thing for them, but I think it's very hard to find in our society, um, first of all, to find a woman. I know that you and other people have found really good partners, but there are many men out there who, we the women today are told, you know, it's not a good thing to be a wife and a mother. They're told to delay those things. And they're also told that men are supposed to provide them with with everything. They're supposed to provide the money. They're supposed to provide um, just helping with the children. And I think for men, the expectations are so high that it's very difficult to make that leap into getting married. Also, if things go wrong, remember, the man is going to be the one that's going to get the full brunt of it. A woman, legally, I'm not saying yeah. on a personal level, yeah. but I think that makes it very hard for men to want to take that jump to get married because they know that they're going to be held more responsible more so than a woman would be. You know, one of the reasons I always want to find out about this is because every story I read is about the proliferation of, uh, of cheap sex and, you know, college kids are having these weekends where this is all they do. Every single person I know is lonely and uh, yeah. not getting out, you know, and, and miserable, basically, you know. Right. I mean, that they, they yearn for companionship. They do, and I think because our society is so externally oriented now, we have everything, we, we've gone to all this technology where everybody, and I'm not saying it's the phones, but everybody looks at technology, they look at the internet, and I think that over the years, our communities, everybody moves around, and we don't know each other as well, so nobody really knows, and because there's so much mistrust between people, and I think even our political system make it so we all mistrust each other, you know, Democrats mistrust Republicans, <laughs> Republicans, we're all like so angry with each other, and I think that it makes it very difficult, not just politically, but um, so many people, I think, get hurt or feel that you can't trust somebody, and I think our society, even in the job situation, there's, you know, all of us are replaceable now, and I think we don't put a value on human life, and when you don't put a value on people as individuals, I think what you get is a society full of people who don't value other people's individuality. And I've seen that more and more just in my own practice. I've seen so many, you're right. I mean, so many kids and teens and, and adults are lonely now. Yeah. And, yeah. and at the same time, you see all this stuff on Facebook and there's a discrepancy between everything that you see in the movies and the media about how everybody's having a great time. They're all partying, they're all having sex. And at the same time, you're home and lonely. And you can kind of see the discrepancy where everybody's depressed. Yeah. I, no, yeah. it, it looks that way to me, too. That's why when I read these stories, I kind of think like, gee, this is not my experience. I, no. You, you have a practice. You see people. If a, if a man came to you and said, um, I, I want to be married, I, I know that psychologists don't, aren't in the business of giving advice, but just, just in imagination, if a man came to you and said, I would like to find a, a wife, what would your advice be to him? You know, in the old days, my advice was, I hope that you can find somebody really great and let's help you to do that. But over the years, I've been in practice so long that my, my advice has changed over the years. And a lot of times, if it depends what age the man is, if the man really, really wants children, I would try to teach that person or help that, that man to find a partner that is really suitable for him. But I, I tend towards more seeing middle-aged men and older who have already been married. And a lot of those men a lot of them tell me, I never want to get married again. Wow. <laughs> and the reason is that because they were hurt so badly the first time a wife has taken their children. Um, I also want to say that in our society, kids are kind of used as pawns. In other words, 
in our society more and more, those children used to, in the old days, they belong more to the men, to the husband, to the father. They had more say in how the, where the kids went. Nowadays, if you look at almost in every case, the woman, 80% of the time, gets those children. Men, it's very, very difficult for men to actually get access to their kids if there's a divorce. And I think that children are used as a pawn. And because of that, I think that when men are middle-aged and they already have children, maybe there's not as much of a point of getting married at that point. So I might give the advice to the man, maybe you want to wait and see. Um, is that something you really want to do? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I hear what you're saying, and it's very difficult. It's a legal contract, a legal contract yeah. that says to men now, you're responsible, and if things go wrong, you're, the courts are not going to favor you. The courts are against you in the majority of cases. So you, you wrote a book called uh, Men on Strike, Why Men Are Boycotting Marriage, Fatherhood, and the American Dream, and Why It Matters. Why does it matter? Why, why is what's going on important? Because what we're seeing is so many men and boys withdrawing today. We see boys in school that are all on, um, they're all diagnosed with ADHD because boys can't, you know, we could go on and on, but we know that boys are having a lot of emotional problems. They're not learning in schools. They're not going to colleges often. They're not doing um, jobs anymore. And they're withdrawing from society. And I think that affects, number one, I mean, first of all, it affects themselves as individuals. It affects um, our society and it affects uh, economically. It affects every aspect of our lives. A lot of women are unhappy, but that's not the important thing. I wrote Men on Strike because it's important that men be treated as autonomous beings who deserve respect and an education and due process in this country. And that brings me to another point, which is that I really like what the uh, Trump administration is doing with Betsy DeVos, yeah. with um, going after Title IX and looking at some of these due process rights for young men on college campuses. Young men's rights under the Obama administration were taken away in that they reduced the level of preponderance of evidence that one needs to accuse a young man of rape or sexual assault on campus. And what DeVos is trying to do is say, hey, let's put that preponderance back up. Instead of 50% of the time you're guilty, let's have it go back to more a criminal case where it would be you need beyond a shadow of a doubt. Or, you know, it, it seems so unfair if you're a young man in college today. Just imagine, you know, I know you have a son. Um, I know other people have sons out there. And I think a lot of uh, men and young men and their fathers are afraid. You know, what do you do if your, your son is accused yeah. of sexual abuse. I mean, there are many issues that young men are facing today that they didn't face years ago. And it's a really very much a tragedy that in the United States of America that young men's due process rights are so easily flippantly tossed out. It's a strange paradox that feminists have essentially said that they want to be treated exactly uh, like men, but they want men to still behave as if they were young ladies from the Victorian era. And I, you can't have both things as a price you pay for everything. Well, what they want is they want men to have responsibility and women to have privilege. That's the right. new feminist mentality. And yeah. the old feminist mentality was more, you know, you always think of it as more equality. That's right. what I thought when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s. It was sort of like, oh, you thought it was going to be like an equality type thing. And now it's just well, women are privileged and men need to be responsible. They don't say that. Right. But that's what we see in the legal and the political realm. Yeah. Dr. Helen Smith, uh, the author of Men on Strike, Why Men Are Boycotting Marriage, Fatherhood, and the American Dream, and Why It Matters. You can find her online at pjmedia.com slash Dr. Helen, all one word. Helen, it's great to see you. I it's hope great you, to see you. I hope you Thank come back you. to L.A. I'll see you. Say hi to Glenn. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <clears throat> um, I just before before we get to stuff I like, I just want to add one more thing about what I was talking about before, that so much of what happens 
on the left is about the fact that what the stuff that they're saying isn't true. And that not only is it not true, but they don't care that it's not true and they just don't want to be interrupted. Don't, it's like, don't interrupt me while I'm lying, you know. And there's a new study now that shows that global warming is happening much more slowly than they thought it was, okay? Now, they're selling this as, oh, this means we have more time to implement the Paris Accord and it'll work. But <laughs> what it really the story is, is that their computer models were way, way off. And they, they're selling this whole story as if like, oh, you know, th this gives us more time, more time. To, but really, it seems to me that like the scientists themselves are saying, well, yeah, you know, our computer models were really just a kind of amalgam of different models and kind of an average and all this stuff. And now we're kind of changing our mind. Uh, one, one guy, one scientist said, we haven't seen that rapid acceleration in warming after 2000 that we see in the models. We haven't seen that in observations. Another scientist said, when the facts change, I change my mind. And, you know, they're still obviously selling and the climate is changing. We know it's changing. We know that we all want there to be less pollution. That's always a good thing. But the panic and the basic selling of left-wing uh, politics, of the government taking over oil supplies, taking over energy supplies, all that stuff that has been used to panic. And when you don't buy it, first they start with the emotion, we're all going to die. Then they start with the hectoring. Uh, you know, you're a climate denier, and finally they get around to just punching you in the face. It's the Jimmy Kimmel party. It's Jimmy Kimmel is just exemplifying his entire, the entire uh, party. All right, stuff I like to end our week. Uh, stuff, you know, it's the Clavenless weekend already. This was a really fast week. I know. It was like, foof. And, uh, and Puerto Rico is like gone already, right? And Puerto Rico and Mexico, we've lost every place. Where, like, I mean, it's a good, it can only come closer and closer. And we're, we, we've been having some small earthquakes here. I sleep through them, of course, but like yeah. everybody else has been. I, there's a big one the other day. I didn't even feel yeah, it. Yeah, I didn't feel it at all, but apparently it was, it was real. Today, I want to talk about the fact that many, many of our great film directors who are not associated with small noir crime films started out making small noir crime films. And I, the reason I point this out is because small noir crime films are just about my favorite kind of film. And so when you go back and you find these great, great films made by directors who later became famous uh, for other things, they really are like little gems. So let me just start with The Killing, which is uh, Stanley Kubrick. I don't think it was his first film, but it was very, very early on. I, of course, Kubrick went on to make 2001 and all those films. Uh, but The Killing is a terrific film. Its final scene has been stolen again and again and again. When you get to the end of this picture, uh, you will see it's basically a bank heist story. Sterling Hayden, one of the great underrated um, uh, noir actors. It was written by Kubrick and Jim Thompson, the guy who wrote uh, The Killer Inside Me. He wrote a, a number of noir, famous noir novels. Uh, very, He's a very famous cult noir writer, and so he, he co-wrote the script. And it's a bank heist story. A bunch of criminals get together, and here is one of them played by the absolutely uh, immortal Alicia Cook Jr., uh, who played the gunman in The Maltese Falcon. And he's he's enslaved by this femme fatale and he just wants to tell her that soon as soon as this bank heist comes off he's going to be rich 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 and here's the scene how would you define money george now if you're thinking of giving me your collection of roosevelt well, i mean big money hundreds of thousands of dollars you really don't feel well do you are you sure that pain's in your stomach i'm gonna have it sherry hundreds of thousands maybe a half a million <laughs> of course you are darling did you put the right address on the envelope when you sent it to the north pole Go ahead and laugh. Wait and see. Maybe you won't be laughing so hard in a few days. You're really serious? You really think you're going to have a lot of money? I don't think nothing. I know it. 
You've never been a liar, George. You don't have enough imagination to lie. So what makes you think or know that you're going to have several hundred thousand dollars? Because I do. I just can't talk about it, that's all. Not even to me, your little share. I shouldn't have even mentioned I was going to have it. It's not that I mind. I know I can trust you. But if these other guys these ever... These other guys? I can't talk about it, Cherry. I just can't. I love that. I love that the collar is turned up. He's got this sweaty collar and all this. Elisha Cook Jr. was just the ultimate little mousy guy, you know, who was like always trying to be a bigger man than he wanted. Another great film uh, by a guy who went on to become a big-time director, Shallow Grave, 1994. People do not see this. I actually saw this in the theater in 1994. It's got uh, Ewan McGregor, uh, Christopher Eccleston, who you've seen, Eccleston, who you've seen a million times, uh, Carrie Fox, bunch of guy, uh, three people, two guys and a girl, have this beautiful apartment, and they're kind of, there's something a little bit sadistic about their relationship. Uh, they need a roommate, and so they rent it to a guy who comes in, and one day they find out, they walk into his bedroom, and he's dead, and he's got a suitcase full of money. And so they decide, hmm, what do we, what do we do? You know, and they decide they're going to keep the money, but now they got to get rid of the dead guy. And hence the title, uh, Shallow Grave. But of course, a suitcase full of money belongs to somebody, right? So this, it's just a, a movie where this threat is just keeps coming and coming and coming while they keep ignoring it. And here is the scene where Eccleston tries to get Ewan McGregor to face up to the fact that somebody is coming to get this money, and Ewan McGregor just won't listen. <laughs> listen, can we talk about something? No, no, I have an idea. It's important. We need to decide. Will you just stop worrying? To love and to happiness forever. Forever and ever. What's wrong? I want to talk now. Not until you've drunk to love and happiness forever. Now. After. David, I promise we will just keep him happy. It's not for me, it's for love and happiness forever. So it's just, I mean, it's just this wonderful kind of, you know, young, young people, you know, fooling around, except this absolute threat is hovering over them. It's a really good picture. Heavenly Creatures, I have a personal story. I've, I may have told this on the air before, but a really good story. Heavenly Creatures is, I believe, the first film by Peter Jackson. May, there may have been one before, but Heavenly Creatures is by Peter Jackson, obviously the guy who went on to make Lord of the Rings. Um, and... It's a, a really small film, early film of uh, Kate. I, it was actually the first film by Kate Winslet. Uh, she's paired off with a woman named Melanie Linsky. This is a true story, a true story about two girls in New Zealand who got into what is called a folly à deux, and they were 15 years old. The folly, you know, is paired. What, what is it? How do I translate that? Madness for two. Madness for two. My son Spencer, the linguist, is <laughs> done. Um, you know, and they and this is a true story, uh, 1954. And they finally came up with, they were trying to part them because they were afraid they were getting too romantic, the two girls. And the mother was trying to part them. And they finally came up with an idea of what to do. And here's the scene where one of them introduces that idea to the other. I know what to do about mother. We don't want to go to too much trouble. Some sort of... Accident. People die every day. So, 
I, I may have told this story before, but it's worth telling again. I was in London and went to a very fancy party for writers uh, at the Houses of Parliament. So tuxedo, black tie, and all this. And I'm mingling, talking to people. My wife is there. And I met Anne Perry, who is a very famous, very best-selling writer of historical detective fiction. She writes these detective stories that take place in Victorian England, okay? Anne Perry, big bestseller. We're having a charming conversation. She lives way, way up in Scotland. She lives absolutely, I think it's, I think it's called like Land's End or some places like the end of the world where she lives. And we're chatting and uh, we walk away and my wife said, you know, I found her charming. I found Anne Perry charming. We walk away and my wife said, you know, that's kind of a an offbeat woman. That's an offbeat woman. I said, why? And she said, I don't know. It's just something offbeat about her. So we went home for the summer, came back to America for the summer. This is maybe three days later. Okay, three days later. I sit down. I open the New York Times, a former newspaper, and there's a story about Ann Perry. Ann Perry was one of the girls in that murder case. She spent five years in prison. She changed her name, and she basically left her past behind. She was the girl played by uh, Kate Winslet. And she left her past behind and made a career for herself as a best-selling um, crime novelist. She became a Mormon, a devout Mormon, I think. And uh, the story just came out three days after we met. So my wife just, like, psychologist, like, looked right at her and saw that something was off about her. I didn't see it at all, but it was uh, pretty interesting. Um, that story goes, there's more to that story, but I won't tell it today. Finally, final, last um, small crime film by directors who went on to become big directors, Bound, uh, which is by the Wachowskis, the guys who made The Matrix, and V is for Vendetta. And the story is Joel Silver, who I worked with, I wrote two uh, screenplays for Joel Silver, big, big director, die hard, every, basically every great action film ever made was made by Joel Silver. Joel Silver tells the story that the Wachowskis say isn't true, that they came to him after writing a film called Assassins, I think, and they said, we want to make The Matrix. And Joel Silver is famously a sort of meat and potatoes guy. You know, he's not the kind of guy you think of making The Matrix, though he ultimately did make it. But he said, you know, this is a $100 million film. Before you make that, show me you can direct a $5 million film. The Wachowski swear this picture is not true. They just wanted to direct a film. But they made this picture that is it's really good. It is about... Uh, it's a, about a, two girls who fall into a lesbian relationship, except one of them wants to get out of the relationship she's in with a mobster, okay? And this is the scene, um, it, it, who is this? Gina Gershon plays the kind of masculine lesbian, the the, bush, the butch one, I guess you would say. And uh, who, who is she? Oh, uh, Jennifer Tilly. Jennifer Tilly plays the uh, super soft uh, feminine lesbian. And this is the scene where they, they first meet. She comes in and Gina Gershon has been working on the house and her hands are all dirty and she just looks like a, a plumber. And, the, and she brings her a cup of coffee. I guess you were straight black. Good guess. Thanks. My pleasure. To be perfectly honest, I did have a slightly ulterior motive. I was wondering if I might ask you a little favor. Favor? Yeah. You see, I'm kind of a night person, and I was wondering if you might wait a little bit before you start using the power tools. Uh, sorry. Oh, no, no. It's not your fault. It's just the walls here are so terribly thin. Really? It's like you're in the same room. But if it's too much trouble, I understand. No, it's no trouble at all. I got a lot of stuff I got to do here. You're doing all the work yourself? Mm. That is so amazing. 
I am so in awe of people who can fix things. My dad was like that. They never had anything new. Whenever anything was broken, he would just open it up, tinker with it a little bit, and fix it. His hands were magic. <laughs> great lesbian noir, very sexy, great sex scenes in it uh, by the Wachowskis. Wachowskis went on to make uh, The Matrix. That's it. The Clavenless Weekend is upon us. Batten down the hatches, hammer boards over your doors. Stop that hammering. <laughs> Stop the hammer. <laughs> and we will see you again on Monday. I'm Andrew Claven. This is the Andrew Claven Show. Survivors, gather here after the Clavenless Weekend, and here's Sinatra to send you out. Life is dull. It's nothing but one big lull. Then presto, you do a skull and find that you're reeling. She sighs and you're feeling like the toy on a string. And your heart goes ring-a-ding, ding, ring-a-ding, ding, ring-a-ding, ding, 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 ding. How could that funny face that seemed to be commonplace project you right into space without any warning? Don't know if it's morning, nighttime, winter, or spring. What's the difference? Ring a ding, ding, ring a ding, ding, ring a ding, ding. She takes your hand, this captivating creature, and like it's planned, you're in the phone book looking for the nearest preacher. Life is swell, you're off to that small hotel. And somewhere a village bell will sound in the steam.